would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. And tonight we're going to be going over verses 6 through 15. As I warned you in the morning, um, unfortunately this week, uh, because I was sick, was uh, awash in terms of uh, sermon prep, and I just was not going to be able to uh, do justice to the beginning of Philippians. So, instead, we are going to be talking about how Paul arrived in Philippi. A little further introduction, perhaps, to his letter to the Philippians and what we can arrive at from reading that particular section. But before we go ahead and read uh, this, let's, uh, let's ask for God's help in understanding it. Sovereign Lord, you are the one who opens up the hearts of men to know your word, to understand it, and to apply it. You are the only one who can take away the veil that will make it otherwise a darkened book. We know, O Lord, that the Jews of old, as Jesus told them in John 5, they read your word hoping to find the words of life, but they did not find them because they did not see Christ in the word. We pray that that would not happen to us. We pray, Lord, that as we look to your word tonight, that Christ would be very real to us and that we would see our need of him. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to send the gospel into Europe and then from Europe, of course, eventually to the Americas, to us, Lord. And we thank you that you have made us worthy of salvation. Lord, there was nothing within us that should have made it possible for us to, to obtain so great a salvation. And yet, O oh Lord, you loved us and you sent us this word. Help us then to hear it and to appreciate it and to apply it. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Reading from Acts chapter 16 and starting with verse 6. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia, and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost colony of the part of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is, of course, in the context of Paul's second missionary journey. The Holy Spirit, we see uh, specifically preventing them. If you had a map of, 
of, uh, uh, and I should have done that, of, of what was going on there. Um, they were in modern-day Turkey. That was the region of Asia. I know today when we think of Asia, we think of China and further over to the east. But at this point in time, the Roman colony of Asia was in Anatolia in modern-day uh, Turkey. And instead of going south to the, uh, uh, to the Hellenistic cities, places like Ephesus, for instance, instead they're given supernatural direction to go west in this case. In verse 9, we have, of course, that vision that appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with them, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, I used to think that this was a vision of Luke, but, um, and that, uh, the reason being that he is not with the party when the pleading occurs, and uh, then later on he switches over to using the, uh, the pronoun we in order to describe it, but um, I have significant doubts about that now. Note it's, they came to Troas in verse 8, and then uh, it suddenly becomes first person plural in verse 10. We immediately sought to go to Macedonia. And that's obviously an indication that Luke is now with the party. We and us. It's the humble way that the historian Luke tells us that he joined the party in Troas. It's much more likely that Luke was uh, from one of the cities in Asia rather than being a Macedonian himself, possibly Troas itself or from Antioch. There's a second century tradition, and of course we don't follow tradition. Uh, the only time we're on absolutely solid ground is when we're reading something in the word, but tradition can guide us. Uh, the second century tradition is that he is from Antioch, that he was a freedman and a former slave, um, and that it was Theophilus who was his master. Uh, but regardless, we know that Luke was not a recent convert at this point in time. He would not have been invited to go along with the expedition. We know five things about Luke from the Bible for absolute certainty. That uh, First off, that Paul considered him a co-worker. And he was a faithful co-worker. Luke was uh, the one who was with him in 2 Timothy. He stayed with him to the end. He was also, we know, a physician. Paul calls him in Colossians, the beloved physician Luke. It was very common, actually, in the ancient world that uh, masters would send their slaves for training as physicians that they might minister to the members of the family. We also know he was a Gentile. That was the third thing we know about him. Uh, and that makes the fourth thing very interesting. He was the only Gentile author of any of the books of the Bible. He gives us two of the books of the Bible, though, and uh, altogether 28% of the Bible was written by Luke. Uh, that is the New Testament, I'm sorry, not the entire Bible, obviously. He was occasionally one of Paul's traveling companions as well, as is the case here. And it is, uh, and we also know that he is the author, of course, of the uh, the two books, Luke and Acts. It is possible that Colossians uh, 4:14, Luke, the beloved physician, joined the party uh, because of Paul's health. We know that Paul's health was not great. He uh, complained of an eye disease, perhaps. He uh, he. Um, points out at one point that uh, see with what large letters I have written indicating that he himself was not the the person who had written uh, the letter. It was an amuensis, a secretary who had written it at his dictation uh, and that he had only signed and you could tell it was his writing because it was in these huge letters because he didn't see very well. But regardless, he is with them. He travels with them from the island of Samothrace, uh, the island today that's called Samothraki. I'm told it's quite the, uh, the beautiful 
beautiful tourist destination in the Aegean uh, at this point in time. I'm not sure it was a beautiful tourist destination at that point, but uh, they get another ship there to Neapolis, which is on the western coast of Macedonia, or eastern coast of Macedonia. Uh, and the wind was in their favor so they could sail a straight course without tacking and thus they made this 156 mile journey in only two days which was fairly miraculous in the ancient world. It was another indication of the providential blessing of God upon their mission to bring the gospel not just to the Gentiles but to the Gentiles of Europe. So they went from Neapolis to Philippi, and I love what, what G. Campbell Morgan had to say about Paul's entry into Philippi. He makes this note, how little the world knows of the divine mo movements. Rome had small idea that day that the van of the army of its ultimate conqueror had taken possession of one of its frontal defenses. On the day when Paul hurried from Neapolis over the eight miles to Philippi and came into the city and made arrangements for his own lodging, the flag was planted in a frontier colony of Rome, which eventually was to make necessary the lowering of her flag and the change of the world's history. The beginning here we see of Rome switching over, obviously, to Christianity. Jesus would conquer the empire that none other could. Uh, there was no synagogue, we note this, in Philippi. Now, that was uh, a difference from what had happened in many of the other cities, even in Anatolia. Uh, Paul had found synagogues, but here in this Roman colony, there was no synagogue. According to the Mishnah, we are told there had to be a quorum of at least 10 male Jewish heads of household before a synagogue could be formed. But apparently, they didn't have that many male heads of household, which wasn't that uh, surprising given that this was a mostly military colony that had been formed from veterans from the legions. You wouldn't expect many male Jews to be in that number. Uh, and the requirements not being met, the faithful, therefore, were to meet under the open sky near a river or sea. Paul, not finding a synagogue, knew that if he was going to find God worshipers, worshipers of the true God, Yahweh, he would find them by the river on the Sabbath. So we see the Jews in exile following that custom in Psalm 137.1, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. Paul goes to the river with his companions and they discover a small group, all women. Again, not uncommon in military towns. We, we know how that works. Uh, the women welcome these visiting missionaries and they uh, expect from them an exposition of the scriptures. They want them to open up the Old Testament to them. So with his friends, Paul sits down and he begins to teach the gospel. He would have been teaching that from the Old Testament scriptures to these women. And although the group is small, the presence of the Lord within it is powerful. As Luke relates in the next verse, Luke mentions one of the women in particular, Lydia. Evidently, Lydia took her name from her native province, which was Thyatira. Thyatira's ancient name was Lydia. Uh, and because she was a worshiper of God, that would have indicated that she was a God-fearing Gentile. Uh, she saw the truth in Judaism. She wanted it, and she had come under the influence of the Jews, was meeting with them. She wanted to know this God whom they worshipped and to know him as a worshiper. And the majority of those accompanying this wealthy woman were probably family and servants. 
Now, what did she do for a living? Well, she, we're told that she was a maker of purple dye. And this was a purple dye that was applied to fine linen. It was, applied, it was uh, obtained rather from the secretion of a shellfish uh, that lived in the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and these are predatory sea snails. Uh, they're called murex. Uh, the Latin name for those of you who are really geeky is muricidae. Uh, they are rock snails, and since approximately 8,000 mollusks were required to produce one gram of purple dye, purple cloth was extremely expensive. This was a very, very difficult dye to produce, the most difficult, hence its cost. And so purple garments were worn by emperors and by private uh, citizens as a status symbol. If you had purple clothing, it showed you had significant wealth. In Rome, for instance, purple stoles were attached to the senatorial toga as well to show their particular status. So Lydia belongs to this class of wealthy merchants and was the owner of a large house. Uh, Lydia had also, most importantly, been divinely prepared for an encounter with the gospel. We read that as she listened to Paul opening up the scriptures, preaching the gospel to them, and proclaiming Jesus as Lord, the Lord opened her heart this is a process that only the Lord can do. We sometimes forget that it is not that we come to faith and then are regenerated, but that rather the Lord has to do that initial life-giving work. He has to regenerate us, and then we respond in faith. In Romans 8.30, we read, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It is that chain that is being carried out in the life of Lydia. Lydia responds because Lydia had been predestined. We remember that it is not we who work faith in ourselves, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are born again by the working of the Lord. We are the gracious subjects of his saving work. And we can summarize the gospel or we can summarize the teaching of the Reformed faith in three simple words, God saves sinners. And on that day, he saved a woman from Philippi called Lydia, who, although she was wealthy, wouldn't have been well known in the ancient world. And yet, this was a woman whom the Lord had known from before the beginning of time and had determined would be his own forever. She and her household, we notice this, are baptized, presumably right here at the river. And at this point in time, immersionists say, aha, aha, you see, you see where they were. They were at the river. We have a, an example of immersion baptism. But then we say, aha, if you go on in the text, we see a baptism occurring in a jail at midnight, not by immersion. <laughs> thus showing that you didn't need to be immersed in order to be baptized. The application of water to the subject is what is important, not the application of the subject to the water. The water is the symbol, obviously, of the cleansing, of the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit who is poured out upon us. Well, I want to make three applications from this. First in, in this is Paul is moving from, we see him coming in his missionary journey uh, across into Europe, 
we see a change in preaching going on in the Bible. First off, here, as Paul goes through Greece, he is going to encounter fewer and fewer Jews familiar with the Old Testament. In his Pentecost sermon in uh, Acts chapter 2, all Peter had to do, you remember, was to, to show the Jews that Jesus had fulfilled all the prophecies that they had been hearing since they were children about the Messiah and call his listeners then to believe in him for salvation. This is, this is Jesus, the long-expected one. He is literally God saves. That's his name. He's finally come to you. But he couldn't do that. Paul could not do that with a largely Gentile audience. Not only were there only here a few God-fearers, there was no synagogue, no audience that was familiar with the scriptures. They were hoping that the scriptures would be, would be opened up to them, yes, but they would not have been <laughs> as deeply versed in it as a Jewish uh, audience. Eventually, there will be entirely Gentile audiences listening to Paul as he goes through Acts. In the Areopagus, you see Paul preaching in Athens, and the people who are listening to him are, are people with no background in Judaism at all. They are Epicureans and Stoics and so on. They, they'd never heard the law of Moses. They knew nothing about the Old Testament. They say, what does this babbler want to say? What's he going on about? I've never heard about Moses or the law or any of these things. So Paul doesn't, doesn't put that before them. And yet, Note this, the word is still effective. The word is coming into a place, reaching a people who had never heard any of the initial signs of it. They had not been given the oracles of God, and yet the word does its life-saving power, work rather, by its power nonetheless, because the Holy Spirit is behind it. Paul is able to make disciples as he goes from place to place to place, even if they have not been prepared to receive the gospel. Now, why is that so important to us? Why is that transition so important to us that I'm speaking of? Well, it should be an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, because if you haven't noticed it, and if you haven't noticed it, you've been asleep for the last 50 years, the United States has gone through a mighty transition. Here in the U.S., the gospel used to have a foothold. When you spoke to people about Christianity, you could assume that they had some basic knowledge of biblical things. Even I, who was brought up in a, in a largely pagan household, had some background in the Bible. I knew some Bible stuff. I had some small knowledge of the Bible. Now, what I find and people don't realize it, perhaps, especially within the Christian community, because we are isolated. We stay within our own bubble to a certain extent. Now the average American knows little or nothing about the Bible. They can't tell you anything about the gospel. They don't even have the basics to it. And yet understand that people can still be saved in that state even though they know nothing initially about it, you can bring the gospel to them. You can open it up. You can explain to them their state. They may not be aware consciously of their state, how they are sunk low, how the fall has affected them, but you can make it clear to them. 
And the Holy Spirit can apply the gospel message of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the most ignorant and hardened of sinners. It is God who does that saving work. Just as he opened up Lydia's heart, made her receptive and eager to believe that gospel, so too God will make those people whom he has chosen eager in the day of salvation to hear your word. That should give you encouragement, brothers and sisters. The Lord has appointed countless people out there to hear the gospel. Go and reach them. Bring them the gospel. They may initially be very resistant to it. I cannot even tell you how hard my heart was when I heard the gospel the first few times, how I ridiculed and scoffed, and how mean I was to the people who were bringing it to me. And yet, the Lord eventually broke me down because he had better plans for me than I had for myself. That's the first application here. The second thing is simply a, a further development of that. Remember this, salvation is of the Lord, and that too should be of the greatest encouragement to us. God sent Paul to establish a church in Philippi, but he also sent him to save a woman by the name of Lydia. And Luke clearly teaches throughout his works, both in Luke and in Acts, that salvation is the work of the Lord. He saves his people according to his eternal plan. Regarding, or rather, according Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts, Luke states that Jesus suffered on the cross according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. When the Gentiles in Pisidian and Antioch hear the saving word of God and they express their happiness, Luke observes this. He says, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's Acts 13.48. So Luke truthfully conveys the teaching that God is accomplishing his plan of salvation. He is fulfilling his eternal plan. That should be encouraging to you as well because you are part of his plan. And that as you go out and you do that work of, of teaching and preaching and, and spreading the gospel like seed, you are part of God's eternal plan. And that should make us glad in our heart. Salvation originates with God. The Lord opens Lydia's heart to have her pay close attention to the words that Paul was speaking. God granted Lydia a receptive heart to receive those spiritual things. And he gave her the gift of faith and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John Albert Bengel wrote in conclusion, the heart is in itself closed, but it is the prerogative of God to open it. He doesn't stand at our hearts and knock and wait for us. There's a ridiculous painting of a door with no handle on the outside. The handle's only on the inside. And there's Jesus plaintively knocking. Oh, please let me come in. No, rather, if Jesus is to gain entry to the building at all, he must open the door because the person on the other side is dead. Dead people don't answer doors. That's something that I have learned. No, brothers and sisters, the wonderful good news is that salvation is the working out of God's plan of redeeming a particular people to himself. Be active in that. Be joyous as you go about in it. Be confident in it. 
And sometimes we're, we're afraid. What if, people, what if people reject my message and so on? Well, what if they do? Ultimately, that's their problem, not yours. Your calling, brothers and sisters, is to go and to spread the word and to do so, knowing that as you are doing it, you're fulfilling the calling of God upon your life to be his agents, to be his workers in the field. And the fields are white and ready for harvest. Brothers and sisters, the people of this country desperately need to hear the gospel. We are at a point where we are hoping that people in this nation will act like regenerate folks without regeneration. And they're not. They're acting like pagans because that's their nature at this point in time. We need to go out into a pagan world just as Paul went into the pagan world and spread the gospel message. We need to stop acting like we can change people's actions when we haven't changed their hearts. If we want things like abortion to end in the United States, then we need to create a people who know deep within their hearts that abortion is wrong because the Holy Spirit has done that work of convicting them. And that'll never happen without salvation. We need to be active. We need to regain that willingness to go out into the highways and the byways and to proclaim the gospel to a lost and fallen generation and to do so boldly. Paul had never been to Philippi before he went there, and yet here he arrives in the city and immediately he's preaching the gospel. Be bold for the gospel, brothers and sisters. Use the opportunities that you have, not just to, I mean, obviously we don't go down to the river to pray anymore, although the song is very nice, isn't it? Um, but uh, what do we do? We go out onto the highways and the byways of the internet on a regular basis. Be bold in spreading the gospel there, however you can. Take opportunities in your workplace or wherever you are. Now, the last application, and this is just actually kind of, uh, it's, it's a drive-by. It's not something that I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to get into in any great length. But here we see, obviously, covenant baptism being spread before us. Paul does not say to her when she brings the members of her household, young and old, servants and relatives, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Lydia. In the Old Testament, the gospel was gracious enough to include your family, uh, but now it only applies to individuals like yourself, Lydia, who are going to make a confession of faith as adults and be immersed in the river over here. Uh, the whole covenant model and the family thing is over, so the sign of the covenant can only be given now to, to adults on uh, a profession of faith. That's not what Paul says. He baptizes Lydia and her household right there and then. We read, when she and her household were baptized, God works in families in fulfilling his covenant promises. To this very day, he still does that. We sometimes forget, and, and we shouldn't, that the ordinary course of things is that covenant families have children, they baptize them, the children grow up in the faith, and then they too have children, and they baptize them, and the children grow up in the faith, and that's the way it was supposed to go. We keep adding people from the outside into the covenant community, absolutely, but we need to remember that the, the main growth was supposed to be in the field itself, amongst the members of the covenant. 
That's the way that the gospel continued to grow up and spread. It used to be the case that in the United States, 80% of Christians would continue on in the faith. 20% might be lost. Now we've flipped it. 20% continue on in the faith and 80% are lost. But part of that, I think, is because we have become overly focused on autonomous individuals. We've forgotten the covenantal nature of the gospel and the way it's supposed to be preached. We preach the gospel not just to individuals, but to families, urging them to come to faith. Lydia believes, but it isn't just Lydia who is baptized. She and her household, young and old, are baptized in keeping with the Old Testament model. We remember Abraham was saved by faith. He believed the covenant promises of God. We're told in Genesis 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. And then the Lord said to him in Genesis 17, 10, when it comes to the sign of the covenant, the sign of his gracious promises that eventually a redeemer would come who would save the nations. We read in Genesis 17, 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. And so we see there the idea that the covenant that is made, of course, with Abraham is the covenant of grace, the same covenant that God spelled out in Genesis 3.15 the covenant promise that from the seed of the woman would come the redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Now, there are many who will say, well, that promise was just made to Abraham. Uh, it It was to him and his descendants after the flesh. But the New Testament makes it very clear that we are not descendants of Abraham after the flesh. We are descendants of Abraham after the spirit. If we have the faith of Abraham, then we are his children. Genesis, or rather Galatians 3, 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The same promises that were made in Genesis to Abraham are the promises that were given to us. That promise of the gospel redeemer. Abraham saw him yet coming. You remember Jesus says in John chapter 8, your father Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He saw the promise of the Redeemer. He obtained the blessings and he put the sign of those blessings upon the members of his household. He circumcised his sons. Eight days old, they didn't have the cognitive ability to understand the promises of God. It would have been ridiculous to have taken Ishmael and said, Ishmael, do you understand the covenant? Do you understand the promises that are being made? You know, obviously not. He circumcised him because the child was born into those covenant promises. And then he related those promises to him. Now, unfortunately, Ishmael was not a believer. He showed himself to be somebody who was apostate. But brothers and sisters, it is our calling to relate those covenant promises to our children, to bring them up in the faith, to depend upon God, to save them in the fullness of time, to hope in him. 
We remember that when Peter preached to the Jews, he did not preach an autonomous salvation. He said to them in Acts 2, 38 and 39, this is at Pentecost, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to you and to your children. And that includes the children of only one believer. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul wrote this, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And by holy, he means they're set apart, part of the covenant community. The child of one believing parent, even, is one of those holy set-apart children. Now, that does not mean that our children are automatically saved. No, they must have their own personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They must take hold of the covenant promises themselves. It must not be merely the God of my father, but it must be my Lord and my God whom they put their faith in. They, too, must make that personal declaration, that confession of faith. But our hope is that they will. And the promises of God are given to us in that. And so let us be uh, preachers, proud and, and fearless when it comes to covenantal baptism, of infant baptism, as the teaching of the Bible and a gift from God, not something bad or to be ashamed of. So many Presbyterians, I know, we, we're kind of, when we're talking to, you know, our Baptist friends, our Reformed Baptists, oh, I baptize babies, you know, it's kind of, no, I baptize babies. Why do I baptize babies? Because the Lord told me to. That's why. It's founded upon his word. Be Bold in your declaration of the truth of covenantal baptism, brothers and sisters. So we see here the word of God moving and powerful. The same word of God. I mean, if I had told you that a group of fishermen and a tax collector, a couple of political zealots and so on, they would eventually preach a message that would overcome an entire pagan empire, the mightiest empire that the world had ever seen. If I told you that in this setting, you wouldn't believe me. It would seem impossible. It was impossible in an earthly sense, but God is the God who does the impossible. And so too, if I say to you that the gospel message that we proclaim today can overcome the pagan empire of the Western world, we might say today, well, that's impossible. Yes, in an earthly sense, it is impossible, but it is possible with God. The same power that changed the Roman Empire is still present with us. It is this word. It's, it's my belief that the great failing of the church in the 20th century is that we turn so far away from the straight preaching of the word, justification by faith, and so on. We, we cease to declare law and gospel. We got caught up in worldly things, gimmicks, social stuff, political things and got further and further away from simply declaring law and gospel. We turned aside from the power of the gospel to change hearts, and we grasped earthly methods that, that can do no good ultimately. Brothers and sisters, what we desperately need is a revival, reformation, and getting back to the word, proclaiming this word that saves. This is the word that saved me. I wasn't saved by political message. I certainly was not saved by somebody saying, come to the giant dance party at my church on Sunday morning. 
The very idea would have appalled me. I hate to dance. And let's face it, I usually had a hangover on Sunday. So, brothers and sisters, get back to the preaching of the word. Get back to the, the essence of the same gospel that Paul shared in Philippi and which saved Lydia and her household and will save countless households to come. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we thank you for giving us your word, your powerful word. When the word is preached or right, it does not come simply with the persuasive thoughts of men. It comes with the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. Your effectual calling is behind it. We pray, therefore, Lord, that your sovereign work would be done in this nation, that we would preach the gospel, the true gospel, and that we would preach it promiscuously to all men, that we would not hold it back, that we would not blunt the parts that seem offensive to others, and that, O oh Lord, we would also deliver your ordinances as you gave them to us, that we would not hold back what we believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper, but would, would, we would proclaim them too as true signs and seals of your gospel and your covenant promises that are so very precious. O oh Lord, give us the power to